Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Walk to Wealth podcast. If you're tuning in on YouTube or any of the podcast directories, we just ask you one teeny tiny little favor. If you find any value in this episode or have found value in the episode prior, we just ask that you refer us to one friend. We are trying to impact as many lives as we can on their Walk to Wealth. Without further ado, we have a super special guest here. Daniel, for anyone that may not know you, tell us your elevator pitch. Who are you? What do you do? There's a good elevator pitch. I am a about to be five year entrepreneur. I originally started from trucking and now I do real estate software and data. And that's been an interesting journey over the last five years, but not been easy, but I've been here today and here to talk about it. Amazing. I'm glad to have you on. And Daniel, before we get into the nuts and bolts of today's conversation, you want to know a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your walk to wealth. How did you get here? Where did this story all begin? Man, I'm, I'm only 30 years old. I started entrepreneurship when I was 25. A lot of people they get into entrepreneurship and you might like a side hustle type thing or you jump all the way in. I jumped all the way in and it's been crazy. It's been really <laughs> crazy. I started, I jumped right into trucking, doing, doing trucking. I had five trucks at one point. This, yeah. Like 18 wheelers, right? 18 wheelers. I started my CDO. I used to drive those. Sheesh. So, um, I'm very blue collar-esque. <laughs> no white collar near around me. I had to work, had to work for everything I got. And it's just been a long, long journey, working hard, bailing, bailing forward, pivoting, making, making some changes and finding, always being consistent. I think it's the one thing that separates a lot of entrepreneurs is being consistent. There's a quote I always say is that if you survive long enough, you'll get there. Because mm-hmm. most likely don't want to do a startup. Yeah, that's amazing, man. That's amazing. Cool. And I kind of wanted to ask you because while we're on the topic of like entrepreneurship and stuff. So you said you started entrepreneurship at 25. Now, a lot of people say that you're either born an entrepreneur or not, and you were able to unlock that entrepreneurial spirit a little later on in your journey, but nevertheless, unlocked it still, right? And we're able to run with it. What's your thoughts there? Is this entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship something that you know, you're born with, you have an innate ability, or did you just always have an innate ability? for it you just never seen it because the skills you thought didn't apply you just didn't put it to starting a business and once you did it applied easily how how what's your thoughts on being a born entrepreneur versus being a learned entrepreneur what are the difference what are your thoughts i think it's different for everybody i mean a lot of people there's no right time to start entrepreneurship and there's no wrong time either like a lot of people like oh if i if i was single without kids i would do it i'm like well when i started i was married about to have a baby so i'm like it's mm-hmm. probably time to do it in, in, in some people's minds but for me it was like it was one of those things where like, if i don't do it now i may never do it so it's one of those things where like it hits people in different stages and everybody has a different life cycle as far as where entrepreneurship is for them i think the, the famous story where uh, kfc colonel Sanders, he started like 56 he started kfc so it's one of those things where like there's no wrong time to start it's just if you don't start that's that's the wrong thing to do if it's something you want to do as a passion, just start it right now. That's the best, yeah. best decision you'll ever make. And so I know you're in the real estate space now, but before we get into that, I just want to ask you one quick question. Why trucking? Out of all the different entrepreneurial endeavors you could have got into, what made you hop into trucking? That's a great question. I was, the reason why I would jump into trucking is because I knew I wanted to do entrepreneurship. It was just one of those things I didn't know what direction I wanted to go. And I was already in the trucking space, transportation space. So I used to load trucks forklift i used to hand loaded some trucks and trailers and tires and stuff like this and then uh, my company they're like hey we'll train you how to drive if you go through our our partnership program Mm -hmm. for a year a year commitment i'm like all right i mean i can do this i like the company i I don't mind driving and it's higher pay so my first year of trucking i did i did like ninety seven thousand dollars in revenue i think nice yeah you're trucking but i literally work six days a week because once you become a driver, it's crazy. Especially if you're a company driver, they have limitless work. And and if you're if you're one of those people that want to work, they put you to work. And definitely. And so, what made you then decide to start your own like trucking business? Then because making that... more easier, I had a I had a CDL already. I mean, I already, yeah. I already knew trucking. I knew CDL, and I'm like, okay, I should learn the business side of trucking, which was. And like I said, the worst case scenario, I could always hop in the truck and drive it myself. That was like, yeah. Right. And like I said, you really, I really didn't know which direction to go. So I'm like, I have a CDL. Let me just go through the trucking route. And I did that for two years. I think maybe mm-hmm. over five or K in two years. And I still lost 100K. Really? Sheesh. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? How that ended up happening? 
show is sponsored by Hive Mind CRM. It is more than just a CRM. It is a real estate and business mastermind that comes with an all-in-one CRM. You can have unlimited websites and users. You can call, text, RVM, and email all-in-one user interface. And you can set up custom automations for any type and multiple businesses. 65% of companies start using a CRM system within the first five years of business. Once implemented, the hive mind will save you on marketing, give you more time, and make more money. One of our users had his first $100,000 month using our system in June. We want to see you automate and accelerate your business. Text us at 210-972-1842 for future meetings and of course to get our $1 course on how to make more than six figures on one land deal. You can schedule your free demo today at hivemindcrm.io. It's just, so if you don't know, all the publicly traded companies are how long have their bucks online. So yeah. Any publicly traded company that's a transportation company, their margins are 3% or less, which means for every dollar they make, they keep three cents. When you think about that, like, that's crazy. So like the company I used to work for was like, they're, they're the highest in the industry and they made three and a half cents per dollar. Sheesh. But when you start your own business, like you have maybe a, you have less employees, less expenses, whatever. So you're like 10 to 2% on paper, but when stuff happens, it's all on you. Whereas that, that billion dollar company, they're bringing in millions per day, per day. They're bringing a lot of money. So if stuff happens, mm-hmm. they they're self-insured. They don't have to pay insurance premiums. If anything access, they should pay out of pocket because they have so many drivers on the road. They have a lot of like upper hand that I did because I always had to pay insurance. Mm-hmm. When I, at one point I was paying 10,000 a month in insurance. So when, like, oh my goodness. About, when you think about business, you know, like, yeah, I made 500,000, but like what Jake should keep? nothing i actually lost it all so you work two years for free how long can you sustain that mm-hmm. so it's one of those things really like get to look at like what costs are going out yes you can potentially make five thousand dollars per truck per week but what goes out insurance driver pay fuel maintenance repairs mishaps a downtime you might not get loads for in the midst of like there's too many i always make a joke with my buddy is like you have to wait for the stars to line and trucking for you to get paid, which is a bad thing. Like there's too many variables. There's drivers in the road, there's traffic, there's accidents, there's maintenance, there's maintenance failure, there's shippers, receivers, police, DOT. <laughs> All these things weigh in into whether you get paid or not, and it's too many. Diesel. Yeah. Diesel a lot of different factors there and you were able to like maneuver them all and come out alive at least. That's the best part about it. Not like losing losing a hundred thousand is a lot of money, but you were able to from there still be able to then get into real estate and find success there out of all the other things that you could have probably got into i know you're already in the trucking why not just stay in transportation why'd you get into real estate i i was burnt by the transportation business i just i i there was no there was no passion anymore for me it was just like i i hate this thing i'm on work i'm on call 24 7 drivers working through holidays i worked every day because I mean, my if my driver is working on the road, I had liability out there at some point. So like, it was like stressful all the time. And it wasn't, I didn't like that. I didn't like, I didn't like the liability of, of drivers being out there. If some people are, are morons and they, they screw up a lot of things and their employees are great at that. And it's just, this is one of those things where like stuff happens, stuff happens, stuff that's out of their control, stuff that's out of your control. And it's just, you have to pay the price every time, every time yeah. you so I had a driver hit a, hit a, hit a deer. Oh my goodness. I've had a driver get stuck in a ditch. I've had drivers almost roll, roll my truck. I mean, it's just crazy. All the stuff I think about back then, I was like, I'm just glad I'm not out of that. And I don't want to go back to uh, <laughs> anybody. Not that I, that's not like bringing it up. Cause I always like, I always like talking about trucking because I want to tell people the truth. Cause most people that hear trucking on YouTube, it's all sunshine and rainbows. And I'm like, it's really mm. not, I've been in the trenches. And you don't want to be in the trenches. Yeah, no, definitely. And then which is why you got into real estate. And then, if I'm not mistaken, now you're investing in land. You typically, when you hear anything about real estate investing, it's your typical, you know, burr strategy, house hacking, fix and flip, wholesaling, maybe if you're, or if you're a little more into it. And those are usually some of the main things, but you're investing in land. Out of all the different real estate investment routes you could take, what ended up making you choose land? I like land because it's less competitive and it doesn't cash flow. 
a lot of people look at me crazy like it doesn't cash flow why do you like that well it doesn't cash flow for a good reason so you can't if it's a if it's a house a multi-family for storage they know they can rent it out they know they can put out airbnb they know they can let their cousin live there for free or let their cousin rent it out they have all these different options with land it's just there they have no options they actually negative cash flow each year because they have to pay taxes so what when you think about that it's like every year they hold this they're losing money so they're they're always there's always some hit and motivation just by people that own it and then the people that buy it they have to get use like either have cash or it's financing and it's really really hard to get financing so people that have cash are usually for discounts so these are getting beat up on price all the times so people that buy land they're always going to be up on price there's always an underlying motivation because they're paying tax and doesn't produce income and they're always willing to negotiate you can with a house if you're wholesaling you have to move that house within 30 days or else you're gonna lose that contract but yeah. man we can lock up a deal for 30, 90 six months 90 days six months We've had, we've had a property in the country for a year and it doesn't even phase them because they're just sitting on it. What's another year to them? They don't care. So it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot longer stretch time periods to move deals if you're yeah, creative. And, and so what are some of the pros and cons about that? Especially when starting off, cause when, if anything, it usually takes a while to get things going, but with things that tend to have even longer period before you can get paid, such as real estate and land investing. Not only are you taking long to get it going, but then once you do get it going, it's going to take even longer to finally get that check. So how, how was it like for you investing in land? How are you able to keep yourself afloat between like figuring it out and getting it started? And then also once you did get it started, then that long period of time that it normally takes to get that, that commission check or that paycheck or that land. That, that's a great point, man. It's one of those things where like, so when, when I, I'll tell you my first deal. My first deal, I was living in Atlanta at the time. I was still doing trucking. And uh, I was doing online marketing. So I had a website up mm-hmm. to it. Lady fills out my form on the website. She's like, hey, I have this property in Florida. This under South of Jacksonville. I have a property in Florida that I'm getting fined for people dumping on my property. And I'm just getting the letters sent to me all the way here in Atlanta. And I'm getting fines. What can you do on it? I'm like, I look it up. It's probably worth about 15 to 20,000. I'm like, if I can get this thing to five, I know I can move this. For a discount. So the whole thing with land is this if you if you get it heavily discounted, you can sell it discounted and it moves quick. That's the whole idea. Same thing with the houses or whatever. So okay. I was like, I shot her offer of like four I just made up an offer. It was like forty two hundred dollars and thirty-three cents. And see what she says. And I, this is all through email too. I never talked to this lady. I mean, I was scared to talk to sellers. So I shot her an email, forty two hundred dollars, thirty cents. And she's like, Can you do five? And I'm like, five is where I wanted to be anyways. Like, yes, let's do five. So I stand back. Let's do five. Contract get to five. I emailed her the contract. And then I put it on Facebook Marketplace mm-hmm. for 12. Because I'm like, if it's 20, I should be moving at 12 really, really fast. Somebody's going to pick this up quick. So I actually sold it in two days for 12. And all through, the, I emailed the, the, I never talked to the title company, never talked to the seller, never talked to the buyer. Everything was through email or Facebook Marketplace DMs. Jeez. So then let me ask you, because. This is pretty interesting. So you were able to get land on a heavily discounted price, then sell it at an even a discounted price, still somehow make money, not have to talk to really anyone face-to-face or over the phone, and from the comfort of wherever you were at the time, Atlanta. And so my question is, though, how does one then determine the value of land? How does one, like, let's say there's an acre, an empty acre lot in, I don't know, let's say Florida, stay on topic with the conversation. Like, how do you know, like, hey, that land is worth X amount, like, or do you just discount from whatever price the seller is selling at? Like, how do you know the value? So you're not just like speculating on, oh, maybe I could sell it for this. So it's, it's, that's the other thing. There's no verifiable comps. So with Florida, you're a little bit, you have a little bit more flex just because there's a lot more lots. And that was like a little info lot, which info lot is where there's a house, house, vacant lot, house, house, vacant lot. Those are little info lots in between other houses. So it was one of those. So usually with those, there's a lot of those in the area. And usually there's builders buying those up in Florida, especially because Florida's were cut up pretty, yeah. pretty info lots. So with those, I have comps. We do this in Texas where there's no, where there's not comps at all. So the way you do it is by what somebody's willing to pay for it. I mean, that's how real estate works. Whatever somebody's willing to pay for it, that's what it's worth. So check this out. With houses, there's always, hey, the neighbor's house sold two, do- two doors down for this much. It's a four bed, three bath. 2,500 square feet, you have the same exact house. That's what it's worth. So yeah. you kind of verify that what it's worth that way. 
with land, you have a little bit of flex because there's not always them. There's not always cups. So it's yeah. always based off of opinion of sellers. So when you have that leverage, you can oversell properties, which is what we do now. So like with that one, I didn't know what I was doing. I could have made way, way, more, way more money on that deal that I, I undersold. Because now what we do is I sell house, I sell land at full price right now. I don't sell nothing underpriced. I actually sell overpriced. So that one land deal, I probably could make, instead of six grand, I probably could make 15 or 20, knowing what I know now. But it's one of those things where you, you live and learn and you kind of adapt your strategy. But it's one of those things where like with land, there's no verifiable comps. You can sell it whatever you want, as long as somebody's willing to buy it. So then let me ask you, so then it, it kind of sounds as if like, it, it's kind of like a game of who's the better negotiator, essentially. Can I out-negotiate you or versus like, can you out-negotiate me? Because as you said, there's, there's kind of no comps to like say, well, actually the, the lot right there sold for 10,000. So this one has to be worth at least 9,500, right? There's no comps, as you said, some of these times, so it's like, it's kind of a battle of who's the better negotiator, it seems like. It, it depends what type of land you're looking for. So like those, those Florida lots, like if there's lots selling, I have clients in Florida right now that they do this with land with, $30,000, $40,000 lot. So they know if they get a certain square footage lot in this area, they can sell it for $30,000, $40,000 every time, every time. So all they're doing is looking, hey, would you take 25? Would you take 20? Would you take 15? And they're just negotiating out because they know they can sell a lot for 40 every time because the lots are so very similar. Yeah. So like they do like reverse wholesaling because they already have buyers in place that's going to buy at 40. They're just mm. looking for deals under 30, under 30, under 30, under 30. And they'll talk to every seller that has that same type of property and they'll pitch them 27,000, 25,000. Oh, you want 30? Okay, I'll take 30. Boom. That's an easy 10,000. Boom, boom, boom. Over and over again. So I have clients that do 10 to 15 deals a month just doing that strategy because they have buyers that are going to pay 40 every time. Yeah. So then how do you kind of connect with some of these buyers? I know like there's Facebook groups for like real estate investors and stuff like that. But as I said, most of the time it's like fixing flippers, hard and wholesalers and cash buyers, essentially. Like, is there like groups and stuff like that? Like, where do you find the flock where the land investors, land buyers and sellers are. So it depends what type of asset you're doing. So like there's info lots and then there's what we do. We do a completely separate side. But let's talk about info lots first. So info lots, yeah. you're, you're talking to builders. You're talking to people that are going to buy and build a house. Then there's plenty of them in Florida because like there's big builders or small builders, people that are just going to build one house a quarter. There's people that are going to build one house a week. So there's different types of builders that are going to buy a certain amount of lots per quarter. And they kind of fluctuate. So usually it's going to be a builder. So if you have an info lot in Florida, you're looking for builders. You can Google them. You can, you can pull, you go to the county, go to title companies. Hey, who's buying lots in this area? Well, oh, this builder bought three lots just last week. Okay. That's the guy you want to talk to. Mm-hmm. So that's for info lots. For what we do, we do larger acreage and we do farm and ranch, 10 acres or more. What we do in Texas is we're, we're selling straight to retail. So if it was retail buyers. We go directly to agents because agents have repo buyers. So agents always have like, oh, I have a buyer for that property. I'm like, all right, right. Mission. So we get it, we get it at a good price or good negotiation terms where we can sell it to end buyers direct. So like a lot of people talk about like selling to investors, selling to investors, selling to investors. Like we don't sell to investors. I don't have a buyer's list. We have zero buyers. We sell every property we get and we, we, we sell goes directly to an end buyer that's going to pay full price or over asking. Because we sell to the retail side. Yeah. And yeah, so then there's bigger spreads. So then let me ask you then too, because I know like in the regular market, at least recently, not happening as much now from what I'm seeing, but you, when there comes to land investing, is there like multiple offers? Like, or is it someone that is usually like less people offering? Like, how does that work? Because you said you kind of work with selling directly to agents because agents have the buyers. So what's it like on the buying side, at least? Like, what are you seeing from the people who buy these lands? They're, they're usually cash. They have used have cash down payments. Cause one thing about our buyers is, is they know, think about this. Mm-hmm. Anybody that buys a house, they're usually going to live in it or change their rental. It's one of two things. They're not going to buy it to let it so big in. They're just not. So it's either rental, Airbnb or a rental tenant, or they're going to live in it. So you're talking to people that actually have a thing who buys land, people that can afford to and want that for leisure activities which means they have cash available, which means they have cash down payments, which means they can afford to pay monthly terms. So that's our leverage is we will take cash down and we'll leverage it. We'll be the bank and cut cash flow on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then my question is to you then, 
So you mentioned earlier, it's hard to get traditional financing on Ferland. Can you kind of explain like why that is? And I know you mentioned that you guys kind of act as the bank. Can you kind of explain the process for like people who may not have cash, but may still want to invest in land, but may not know how to actually get in there? If you go through a traditional bank, I mean, everybody talks about traditional financing is you're going to have to pay 20 to 30% down with any bank that lends on land. Good luck finding one. There's not many, many out there depending on your, on your state and your local municipalities, but there's not that many, there's not that many land, land banks that will land on land. The reason why banks don't like lending on land, because there's no asset there. It doesn't cash flow. Same reason why we like it. The same reason why banks don't like it. There's no way to, it's, it's literally the floor. You have to improve, you have to improve <laughs> the land to make it worth your while. You have to put in a water, you have to put in a fence, you have to put in a building to make it rentable. Like mm -hmm. you can think about it that way, like it's just land. So banks, they're making, they're going to make it really, really hard to finance. They're going to give you really high terms, high interest rate because mm -hmm. they want, they want you incentivize you and push you to build a, build a barn or build a house, build something on it. That way you can refinance out and get a traditional loan that's long-term. So like when you become, when you're acting as the seller, cause we, we buy or, or contract and then we sell as the bank and the seller. We can then create, we can oversell properties and create our own terms. Okay. That, no, that makes perfect sense. And so at least when it comes to buying land, it's, it seems like it's a lot more like niche market. There's a lot less, as you said earlier, but we're starting to come to more of an understanding now that there's a lot less ball player just for that simple fact that you can't really get financing on it. And so when it comes to land investing, aside from what you're doing right now and like selling it, what are some other things that people could do once they buy this land? Like aside from just selling it to the next buyer for a higher price? I mean, there, there's plenty of opportunities. So we have, we have clients that are like, well, I want to, I want to build, I want to build a, a duplex or I want to build a house on it. And that's what most sellers want to do too. Mm -hmm. The thing is that you have to go through the permitting process. It's construction. You gotta, you gotta hire the, the subcontractors and the general contractor to actually build to put in the foundation. It's a nine month to 12 month play. Is doing all this extra stuff that you really don't have to do, which is why we just acquire and sell because we're just, we're just doing that. Our end buyer, if he wants to build, like we have an end buyer right now we're talking to, he builds, he puts on mobile homes. So he's looking mm -hmm. to buy a mobile home and then sell it again. That's what his whole game plan is. I'm like, I don't care what you do with it. Just pay my money right now. <laughs> he can do whatever he wants. Whether he puts a motor for mobile home manufacturing home or builds one up. I don't care. It's give me the down payment, give me the monthly payment and. I'm going to tell it high and high interest that you're going to carry that thing till you, till you put a mobile home on it and sell it again. Okay. So now let's say for the people who kind of want to do similar, something similar to what you're doing, how did you, especially when starting off, like what were some of the tips and tricks you would tell yourself if you could go back and like coach yourself, I guess, as to like finding these deals, like where do you find land? I know I can, at least for me, cause I'm a realtor, I could just go on to MLS and kind of just like put in a feature for land and see what's on there. But even still, it's like, they usually, the search results don't come out all that great. So like, where do you go to really find this stuff? It's, there's a lot of different ways. So there's list companies that you can pull the list. You can go to the counter directly, pull the tax roll. You can drive for dollars just like you do for houses. You see a land mm -hmm. person, a thing like Langlide, figure out who owns that property and send them a tech, skip trace them, send them a text just like you do with everything else. So it doesn't, the, the set steps are the same, whether you list pull, drive for dollars or pull a list. I mean, it's all the same, but it's just contacting and making the, making the sale. So in Texas, there's about a thousand land parcels per county. And there's probably like, I don't know how many tech counties. I think it's over, I know it's over 50, but that's a lot of, that's a lot of land. Mm. A lot of the majority of the U S is made up of land. There's more land than there is houses. Mm. I think, I think it's like 70, I think it's like 80% of the U S is still land. Really? So can you think about that? so much more opportunity than there's more opportunity. There's like three X opportunity of land than there is houses. No, no, that's ridiculous. I didn't even know there was that much. I know like Texas, especially that has a bunch of land. So then let me kind of ask you, cause like I live in the Northeast, right? I live in Connecticut. I'm right next to New York city. Is land investing better in places like down South? Could people potentially like try to replicate what you're doing up here in the Northeast? What's your thoughts there in terms of location? There? So. Land is very, very interesting. It's a very interesting game you play. So there's land literally everywhere. Even in Connecticut, I'm sure you can vacant land parcels that you see and just driving around. Yeah. 
while you're looking at properties whatever. There's land everywhere. So here's, here's how it works. So you have infill lots, which are in the city. And then you have, as it goes out, if you, and it's all about location too. So you, if you have a vacant land parcel on a hard corner that has good car count, that's gonna be worth a ton just because it has good car count. Why do you think McDonald's and CVS's and Walgreens all on hard corners? That's a, that might be a million dollar parcel if you get the right tenant in it. So it's understanding, understanding the projection of what it, what it is. So all land is valuable, like all land, vacant land. I mean, even, there's a, there's a joke. My, my, one of my clients did, he's like, I bought this veterinary clinic vacant. It's been vacant for six months and nobody wants to live in it. And he's like, man, I bought that thing so quick because it's at a hard corner. And even though I can't find a tenant, it's on a hard corner where it's at least worth a million dollars plus just with the land building or not, it's worth a million bucks. So it was a building with 750. He's like, worst case scenario, I'll sleep in it. And it was one of, the, one of the things where he joked around, like he, he's like, it was, su- it was such a good hard corner that he bought that thing overnight, even though it was a veterinary clinic and he might have to tear it down and sell it a different way. Yeah. Like, I don't even care. It was such a hard corner that the value was in the land, not in the building. No, no, that's amazing. So like, let me ask you why we're on this kind of topic a little bit, because that brought up a point that sometimes people buy land and then they like do like a, a land lease or something like that to these like CVSs. Have you ever, do you have any experience there? Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Cause I'm not, I'm, I heard about it from like one guy someplace somewhere. Don't remember where, but yeah. I haven't, I haven't done one yet. I don't know if it's your signal or mine, but you're kind of breaking up a little bit. But I have done a deal. I mean, I haven't done one yet, but I know how it works. It's essentially, it's a, it's a triple net lease is what they call them. So if you want to kind of see how this works, you can literally go on LoopNet and look for triple net leases and you can kind of get an idea of how this works. So if you go on LoopNet, look at triple net leases, they're selling, it looks like they're selling freestanding buildings, whether it's a Walgreens or a restaurant. Or a, there's a lot of different types, all different types of restaurants, Chick-fil-A's, McDonald's, Burger King, Walg- Walgreens, discount tires. They all use this triple net strategy. And the strategy for them is, is they'd rather have a hard corner that they pay rent to the owner than actually own the land. Because for them, owning the land might be a million, 500,000, where they actually should build multiple locations versus actually in the land and building the building. So what they'll do is they'll rent out the land. So that they pay, they pay essentially like a tenant does, they pay the landlord who owns the land, a monthly fee to own the land. And then they'll build more locations because they're a location-based business. Okay. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. And then, so I want to ask you an, a little bit of a different question. So I know you said that land can be super valuable. Does land kind of like appreciate like the same way houses do? And if they don't, is it, can you do like something to like, let's say, I don't know, get a landscaper in there to make the grass look a little greener or whatever. Like, is there ways to make the land more valuable? So when you want to sell it, you could sell it for a higher price. So there's people that do this. Oh, there's a lot of old money that just buys land that sits on it for 20 years because as the population grows around it, it actually makes the land more valuable. So there was a, there was a video I saw on TikTok and it was kind of talking about this where they, I think it was like. 2008, they showed like a Google street view of this one property in, it was like outside like Silicon Valley or Washington, Seattle, something like that, where there's a lot of tech jobs there. Yeah. It was just like a regular to regular house, 2008. They tore it down, built up like a, like a, like a mid-sized, like mini mansion. And then the house is there for like five, 10 years to a 2020 came around. Somebody else tore it down and built a million dollar mansion, the same, the same property. Same property line. So as the population grew around it, the area grew up and the area grew up and as far as like tech jobs, more money's in the, in the area, that same $200,000 house, if they tore it down and build it up, might be worth 750, maybe a million dollars. So they tore that thing down and built it up. You see the same thing in Miami. I was just in my, I was just in my, outside of Miami about end of, end of August or September. I was just in Miami. They have these houses that are right on the river that go straight into the ocean that people will buy maybe a 10, 15 year old house, they'll buy it, turn it horribly down and build a brand new mansion. And it's just the values in the land, not necessarily the house. So they'll come in and build up whatever they want. Turn that and that's amazing. You mentioned like, like Silicon Valley and stuff like that. When you're looking for these lands, 
is there like more desirable land that you tend to like like try to scope out and poach or is it like you just get land as long as it's 10 to 15 acres plus and things like that depending on your investment strategy like what should one look out when uh, look out for when they're about to purchase a, a piece of land that they eventually want to sell i mean there's so many different strategies man so like i have clients that do info lots they go after your little info lots that's what i do we do farm mm-hmm. and ranch we're trying to stay we stay away from the city and we're looking for half of growth so we're 30 45 minutes out of town think about this most people that that have money that don't like city life what do they where do they move to they move 30 to 45 minutes outside of town so that's mm-hmm. where we we realm in so imagine imagine somebody that wants to buy they want a shooting range they want a bar they want a place to to cook out maybe even hunt on their property build a big big house where do they look at 35 30 45 minutes outside of town 10 15 acres that's what we do so we're, we're going with those type of clients that want to they want to live near the city but not too far away where it's too long to travel but they want the, the space to stretch out where they have a shooting where they hunt whether they they do four-wheeling or dirt biking. They want that. They want that flex, that flex space away from their neighbors. So that's what we sell to. Like a lot of, there's like, there's plenty of lots away from the city, but who is buying them? Nobody, because you're too far away from the city. And those are commute. Those are like retired people. So like, if you think about it, there's like the retired zone, there's like the, the money flex zone. And then there's the, the money, the, in, the money in town for new, new bills. So yeah. It's, there's, it's like, like zones in land depending on where you're at and even like hard, hard corners, hard streets that have huge car counts, freeway properties, all those have different value points because of, they might have, they might have more eyes. So like a warehouse might want a freeway property because they're going to get a hundred thousand dollars of traffic daily from just the freeway. That's why freeway properties are more expensive than stuff right off maybe a two blocks in. No, because that makes a lot of car traffic. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. I want to ask you then, so, and this could probably apply for any area of real estate investing, but how do you get so specific as to your target audience that you have to reach out to? Because it's all good to get in the land, but if you don't know who to market to properly, you know, you'll never get it to the right end buyer, meaning you'll never close a deal, meaning you'll never get money and you have to eat up all this access. So how do you get so specific as to who that end buyer is so that you could market to them and make this whole process from acquiring to then getting it off your hands and making that profit? It's just, it's just niching down. That's all it is. I have, like I said, I have clients to do the info lots. We do the farm and ranch. I know people that do the, the triple nets. They target hard corners with good car counts that have 10,000 more of, of car traffic. And then they'll put it in the contract and sell that. They'll essentially sell and get an agreement from a Walgreens or McDonald's or Burger King or discount tire. And that's their whole strategy. So it's niching down and understanding all the facets of your, of your, of your, of your deal. Like I lo- there's so many investors and like, this is why I love real estate. Real estate is so broad. Like, oh, I do houses. I'm like, well, what type of houses? Well, I do mm-hmm. 50,000 that are, are, are rental homes or, or single family FHA. Now, you know, what you're doing, you know, what your target audience is. Uh, so you got to niche down. Like you don't just do single family, just do multifamily. I have, I have clients that do multifamily 10 to 15 units, 10 to 15 mm-hmm. units in mom house. I know people that do 50 and above because they can get, they can get bigger deals. It's knowing what you do in real estate and niching down. That's it. Yeah. And that's like, what's the saying? The, the, the riches are in the niches or something like that. And yeah. I know that this is not only the main thing you do, you also help people skip trace deals and get leads and things like that. You know, how important is having an abundance of lead flow, like in filling that pipeline? How has that been able to help your business and how kind of has that been impacting the people you kind of work with, with making sure that leads are coming in abundance and not scarce to go around? So the one thing between a, a, a good, a good real estate company and a bad one is lead flow. That is the heartbeat. Of, that is the blood flow of your business. If you do have, if you have zero leads, you're in trouble. And like a lot of people are like, well, I'm the best negotiator out there. But if you don't have any leads, you're still going to suck. Yeah. And if you, if you're a bad negotiator and have abundance of leads, you're going to do all right. Yeah. That's, just, that's just the bottom line. You can be really, really bad at real estate and have a bunch of leads that still do deals. So it comes down to the balance. So like if, if you, if you can figure out that lead flow process, you're always going to be in the money, always in the money. The, 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 what happens to people that are, that are falling out of the market right now, the agents, the investors, all these people, it was easy for them to get deals 
when the market was hot, when they could sell prices over, over, over asking, when the mortgage lenders were writing, well, the mortgage lenders were, were, were writing everybody a mortgage. Right now, you got to work for that stuff. It's not, it's not candy. It's not given away like it was before. Mm-hmm. You have to work your bees. You have to find buyers. You have to find buyers that are qualified. You have to do everything that you were doing before. So that's where everybody falls out of the market. So then let me ask you this then. What would you define a, as a lead? Because people come across anybody and it's like, oh, yeah, I talked to so-and-so and yeah, he, uh, I got another lead. And they don't really understand what an actual lead is. So I want to hear what, what is your definition of what a, at least a, a, a qualified lead is. There's, okay, so qualified lead is somebody, for me, that wants to sell in the near future that has a negotiable price. That's willing to negotiate. That's a lead for me. A lead for an agent is going to be something totally different. Somebody that wants to sell in the near future that has that, that that's ready to move in the next 90 days. Like it's going to be different for every, every, every niche specific in a real estate as a whole, but you to get leads, qualified leads, you have to make contacts. So you have to make 10,000 contacts to get two leads that are actually qualified to get into one to close. Cause you're, you're going to have that, 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 that way period of not every property is going to close. So if you think about it from the macro scale. For, for wholesalers, it's like 60, 40, 60% of your deals are going to close, 40% are going to fall through. So for every 10 deals you contract, six are going to work for. So what's the, what's the back numbers on that? Well, you might have to contact hundred thousand people or 15,000 people to get those 10 leads and to get your six deals that close. So if you want to do six deals a month, you need to contact 15 to 20,000 people a month, every month and follow up with the people that were potentially going to work out. And that's where the false come in place. And just working those leads down the path and making more contacts. Yeah. And so they always say the fortune is in the follow-up. So what advice would you give there so you get people can stay on top of things and make sure they're not just a one call, get a lead and forget about them, that they're actually following up with them, keeping them in the pipeline and making sure they nurture them to push them further and further down that funnel until they're finally are ready to eventually transact, whether that's selling their piece of land, whether that's selling their actual house, whether that's whatever it may be, but until they're ready to have that final event. So what's your, your advice there? They need a customer relations management tool. You need some way to keep track and coordinate and follow up with your leads without you, because the more, the more real estate you do and the more contacts you make, the harder it is. Trust me. So you need, you need a system. You need a tool in place to help you with your follow-ups. That is the bottom line. That is what separates everybody else. Most small businesses, I think it's like 80%, don't use a CRM till they're five years in business. What are they using? Spreadsheets, paper, and they're not efficient with their time and they're, they're actually losing money by not following up with their, well, following up with their contacts. Mm-hmm. So you need a CRM. If you need one, check one out. Hide my CRM. We, that's what we do. That's what we do besides land. It helps you follow up with your leads to convert those into contact, contracts to get to more deals. Yeah. So, and so... Then let me ask you about lead generation, right? Because that, you kind of touched on it. You're, that's the, the lifeline of your business. If you don't have leads coming in, what are some, at least for you and your business currently with what you're doing with land, or even if what you're doing with the CRM business as well, what are some of your, your best lead gen strategy and tips that you could give to someone that's interested in getting into this field of play and they're, they're ready, they're willing, they're able, they just don't know where to get started. So what's some of your, your lead gen advice that you would give to a beginner? For real estate, it's just do something. Do something, whether you drive for dollars, whether you pull a list, whether you text, whether you call, do something, pick one thing, bandit signs, email and marketing, do something they, they all work. They all work. You just have to work. So for, if you're doing real estate, we do PPC and text, and that's how we get our deals. I have clients that do direct mail. I have clients that do cold calling. I have clients that do bandit signs. They all work. Just pick something and work it. It's all I'm going to say about lead generation. What we do for the software side, we do Social media, we do content, we do podcasting, we do email marketing, we do text in opt-in features. We do, we have a dollar product where it gets them into our dollar course. They're just in that. It's how to make six figures on one land deal. It's actually a dollar, just course. So 210-972-1842, 210-972-1842. And you get a dollar course. That's the one of our lead generations we do for the CRM. And we do it through podcasting and social media. So the... We treat at different businesses. So the real estate business is different from the CRM business. So we have to figure out what our client needs. So one of the things that we do for people that want to get into real estate is we provide the CRM. How do we provide the CRM? We educate by doing podcasting videos. We've seen a thousand videos on YouTube today. 
we, we provide a lot of content. We do a lot of content in general in multiple different ways. You have mind CRM on every platform and we're there producing content, every platform. So it's one of those things where like, we're, we're providing a lot of education for people to learn and get into the business and take action to actually produce deals and change plot. We've had 14 clients hit six figure months using our platform. And that kind of goes through the whole process. Yeah, but they went through some form of that and now they're producing. So then kind of, let me ask you a little bit of a pivot. You're running two businesses. How on earth do you have time for both? Can you, was there some advice there? Cause as you know, you managing one is already hard enough and you're going to, and you're going to successfully, right? So it's like, what advice do you have there with, you know, being able to have both of these things going on at the same time and as well as helping other people get their business? Like, how do you manage all this all at the same time while they're all simultaneously growing at the same time? Actually, I have four. Four. Okay. That's even more than I expected. Okay. So how do you manage all four? It's a, it's a team, man. It's a team effort. I have, I have people in place. I, I, was, I literally did a, like a, like a conversation. Like, not, I, I have a buddy of mine that lives, I mean, he was kind of struggling or whatever. So I, let's go out to dinner. So I kind of like took him out. I'm like, what do you think my, my one revenue generating activity is for me for all my businesses? It's content creation, which is why I dedicate so much time to building out and doing stuff like this. It's content creation. So for me, my revenue generating activity is, is content creation. It's not to manage the four businesses, not to sell the four businesses. It's not to do anything in those businesses, but do marketing for those businesses. And that is where my, so one of those, two of those businesses, I have a partner that does the sales side and actually runs that. I do the back end and the, I do the back end for the two of those two businesses that I have a partner with. And then mm. I'm the front of CRM. I handle all the stuff with there and I have a team in place that does all the backup fulfillment. So, and then the other thing is uh, digital businesses. With digital businesses, you can scale and sell infinitely. So a lot of my products and businesses are digital businesses that I have a website in place. I have Stripe and a payment collection process in place. So think of like e-commerce. Mm. How, how many people can you sell? your e-commerce product to 6 billion. If you haven't sold the 6 billion yet, there's plenty of customers out there for you. And the other thing is that you don't necessarily need a lot of customers to do good business or make a lot of money in business, especially with e-commerce. Yeah, so I, you mentioned content marketing, which is a topic that I love to talk about and something that I do a lot and a, a lot of content comes from this podcast that I'm able to repurpose to everything. For anyone that's still not, because as, especially from people my age, people think it's more social media, more so like drama and what to keep up with the Kardashian, things like that nature. And a lot of people like the older generations more so like TikToks are just for, I mean, not even just TikTok, but like social media, just for like young kids and things like that. What advice do you give to anyone in general about why content creation is so important and why it's not only the wave of the future, it's the wave of the now and that how people should get into content creation now and content marketing? That is a great question. This is actually my quote because I've seen it happen with other people. And that is you build your infamy off the content you produce. And that goes a lot of different ways. So like what's content is evergreen. It builds, it builds credibility. It builds a customer base. It builds raving fans. There's a, there's another quote that goes, you only need a thousand raving fans to become a, a multimillionaire. Thousand raving fans. That's it. A thousand. If you get, if you, if you get a hundred, you're going to make a hundred K a year with a hundred raving fans. And if you make a thousand, you're going to make a million every year for life. So it's understanding that if you provide and put out valuable content consistently, you will get rich eventually. And it's a long-term play. So like everybody knows about Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast, Christian <laughs> content. He recently said on a podcast that he was offered $1 billion for all his businesses. And he said, no because he's probably making more than that. And he's probably worth way more than that with all the content and the audience he produces. So a, a lot of things is that if you're gonna get into content creation, the leverage you get is you can sell. So you see TikTokers, they, 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 they affiliate for Facebook, for Amazon products, that's the way they sell. So you need to find a way to sell and position other people's products or your products to your audience and sell. And that's how you, if you sell enough, you'll, you can live off that forever. So then let me ask you, how do you create a raving fan? Because you can create as many, uh, much content as you want. And then people will see it. They might like you. They might follow you. But then how do you get them from there to someone that's like, oh my goodness, Daniel, I love you. I love everything you do. I want to support you in all your endeavors. Like what's the kind of process to kind of cultivate that raving fan? Because getting them to see your content on social media is as easy as you just being consistent in posting. But you just being consistent in posting 
is it going to make that person turn into the most loyal fan and supporter out there? How do you kind of get them to that point where they're a raving fan and they want are ready for whatever you have to offer? That is a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. A raving fan is separated by the value of the content you produce. If you provide so much good content that somebody makes 10 grand or 100 grand or 50 grand, they become a raving fan because you, they've now translated your information into their pockets. So that's where, that's where the value of raving fans come from. If you can provide enough value where it translates into physical, physical thing where maybe it's a car, maybe it's a house, maybe it's a, a vacation that they bought, something they learned from your information, that's how you create raving fans. And no, that's amazing. And that we talk about raving fans a lot, at least in my world, and like the real estate as an agent world about creating raving fans. And so what are some of the things you're doing to not only create the raving fans, but then pain and sustain the raving fans so they, they stay loyal, they stay because sometimes people, as, as it's like, they start getting it going a little bit and then they tend to forget sometimes people who help them get it going. How do you make sure that they don't forget so that they always think about you whenever they think about whatever it is that you do? There's a, there's a quote is, is if you didn't produce or release content today, they already forgot about you. So it's one of those things where you always have to be producing content to remind them that you're still there because, and then build up, build up some type, find a way to connect with them, whether you set up one-on-one -on -one calls or yep, you, you have to be reachable people that aren't reachable. They don't, it's really hard for them. Like, I mean, they still can get raving fans, but it's a different type of raving fan. If you, they can connect with you in a certain way. So providing that outlet for them to connect with you is, is a huge thing to create raving fans. And then, like I said, translate value to them in some way. So one thing we did was we do affiliate marketing. So we always try and translate physical dollars into their pocket on a monthly basis. So we do affiliate marketing. If you're interested in sharing the software, we literally translate. If you share the software, we'll give you physical dollars into your account every month as cash flow. And if you're talking about real estate, what's cash flow? Well, you think tennis, tennis, and tennis, tennis and toilets and, and what's there? Termites. You think you're thinking about all those things that come with cash flow. Well, think about this. If you find a good product, there's, pro there's tons of products out there that do affiliate marketing. Even Amazon does it. There's tons of stuff out there that do this. Find a good product that you can stand behind and push out to your audience and you can create cash flow. You super straightforward. And Daniel, you've been dropping gems in the entire podcast. I want to know like, where could anyone get in touch with you? Because you know a lot about a lot of different things, the content creation, marketing side of things, the real estate as a land investor, but then also as you managing your CRM, you're doing a lot. And then you can do coaching as well, podcasting, the whole nine yards. Where can we find you at? Because there's a lot of places where we could probably go to find you, but where do you want people to go specifically to get in touch with you? The, be the best place you told me is just get the, get the six figures, how to make six figures on, on the land course. You can, we have a free Facebook group. We're literally at Hivemind CRM everywhere. Daniel Hivemind, if you see right here on Instagram and Twitter. And I don't know, I'm just producing and releasing a lot of content education. Like I said, I didn't learn all over, I didn't learn all this overnight. Built and acquired this information over the last five years. And it hasn't, I mean, I paid with money and paid with lessons to learn all the stuff that I know. So if I can help shortcut, like I, I, I do a lot. I, I don't mind talking about trekking because I lost a hundred thousand dollars doing this trekking thing. So whenever people ask about it, I always really get because I've seen so many people go down the trekking route and just lose everything. And then they come back to a nine to five and they're an employee for the rest of their life and never leave because they got burned by trekking. And th there's always other opportunities out there if you're consistent and survive long enough to produce results. The show is sponsored by The List Guys. Do you need more leads in your local or virtual market? One in 10 small businesses don't invest in any kind of marketing. The List Guys have over 35 plus list types to choose from and you can mix and match any list or criteria. We also use the skip trace list and provide up to seven numbers and email addresses. Every list you purchase will be scrubbed against previous purchases. The List Guys are here to save you time. Contact the List Guys today at www.1listguys.com. That's www.1listguys.com. Yeah, amazing. And so it's time for our, our last segment of the podcast, the famous final four questions. The first question is, what is the most impactful lesson you learned in life? What separates other entrepreneurs from people that succeed is consistency. 
And it's not a hard thing to do. It's just being consistent. If you survive long enough, you will get there. Just be consistent. If you, if you want to start something and, and make a difference and be a, be a difference in the world, just be consistent with it. What is the most admirable trait you could find in a person? Truthfulness, honesty. And the reason why I say that is because most people, they like seeing the rainbows and stars that are out there in a business and they think everything's hunky-dory and everything's perfect. If somebody's willing to tell you the truth, they're your real friend. If they always skirt around and, and skirt around the truth and, and lie in different ways, mm-hmm. not your friend. They don't want you to succeed. So people that are always willing to tell you the truth right now, right away, whenever you need to hear the truth, that's your real friend. If you had to change someone's life with one book, which one would you recommend? Ooh, with this one, Richest Man in Babylon. Richest Man in Babylon mm-hmm. is a great book. I think it's a very foundation book to enter into the business and life space. But I think as far as business books, I think Attraction is another one. Just because it shows that not everything should or and not everything should or could depend on you. So like everybody has their strengths and a lot of people are like, oh, you need to get better at your weaknesses. Like, you know, fuck your weaknesses. Do what you're good at and that's it. And leverage mm-hmm. the rest out. No, amazing advice. And the final question is, what is the legacy that you're trying to leave behind? Legacy is just change, man. I think, like I said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a minority. My dad is, I'm a sixth generation Mexican. My dad is from Mexico. I, I didn't have the tools that I have now. They weren't given to me. They weren't offered to me. I had to go out there and find them. The information was not out there. I had to go out there and find it and pay for it, source it, learn it, learn the hard way. I think a lot of people, they, they, they look down on minorities as a whole just because they're cut there at, they're coming up and I'm just trying to create a way for minorities to come up in any way possible, whether it's through real estate or business or whatever it is. It's just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to not necessarily like look at me, but follow me. The path has been made. No, amazing advice. And so Daniel, I really appreciate you, appreciate you hopping on the show. I enjoyed our conversation today. I know and the listeners will definitely be able to take away a lot, whether it's from the land investing or content creation side of thing, or even just managing a lead pipeline and filling that up and getting that to, I definitely was able to take away a lot myself personally. So again, thank you for hopping on the show. No problem, man. I appreciate it. Like I said, I'm always here. You can Google me. I do a lot of content about like about this and about different stuff about business, trucking, and everything else. So share providing value. Sound good. Thanks for watching this YouTube video. We hope you found value. Please like, subscribe, and hit the bell to watch more videos just like this one.